0: Our passage this morning is Romans 5, 15, sorry, 22 through 29. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while... I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, is it working? Okay, I'll try not to move, I'm going to stand right here. Hi, I'm Ryan, I'm one of the pastors here, apparently I'm the pastor who likes to ask people for money, because that's what this sermon is about. I actually, this isn't, this not going to work, Okay. Okay, we'll do it this way. Is that all right? So, like I was saying, Dylan likes to make me preach about money, apparently. Uh, I am not the normal pastor, so uh, Jim already mentioned that some of you, this may be your first time, so that's a good lesson. Always visit churches twice. It may not always be the same. I tried to get out of this sermon a few different times. Um, First, I complained that it was homecoming week at the high school where I'm a teacher, and I thought, man, there's a lot going on. Could Could I preach the next week? And Pastor Dylan said, no, I need you to preach this one. I said, okay. So then it got a little bit closer to time, and then my back went out. So the last two weeks, I've spent a lot of time on my back. I couldn't even get up off the bed, and so I called Pastor Dylan and said, Pastor Dylan, I can't even move. I'm just laying here. I can't study, I can't get a sermon ready. And he said, no, I'm going to the beach, suck it up. (laughs) And he even said something about Jesus suffering for me. And like, I'm glad Jesus didn't have a back problem. If you know Pastor Dylan, you know, none of that is true. So, but I actually really do have a pastoral aversion for talking about money, not just not just when, when money comes up in the scriptures, which it does quite often, that doesn't bother me that very much to just throw up the words of Jesus like, hey, Jesus said that, deal with him, right? That's, that's okay. But what really bothers me is those places in ministry where where churches or pastors need to ask for money. I've never been comfortable doing that, and I, think, I don't even know where it comes from, why well, I've always felt that way from the the moment I began my work as a pastor uh, 23 years ago, and I think, I, I don't even remember who said it, but I remember multiple people saying this, I can just hear their voice in my head, um, this this quote, maybe you've heard someone say something like this, all that preacher ever talks about is money. <laughs> thats That's never been my experience in any church ever, but... Even before I was, was a pastor, I'd heard so many people say that. All that all that preacher ever talks about is money. If I go to church, he's asking for money. If I would had more spiritual insight, I might have known they were probably telling me more about themselves than they were telling me about any preacher that they've ever heard, maybe revealing that they have a rich, young ruler heart who loves their money more than anything. Uh, I'm not sure, but I, I heard the, the same sentiment from other sources as well. Uh, one of my favorite rock bands in the 80s, uh, in one of their songs called Bullet, The Blue Sky, he said this, he said, well, the God I believe in's not short of cash, mister. He's Irish. Uh, And he was addressing televangelists in the 1980s, probably rightly, saying, hey, every time I see a, a preacher on TV, he's asking me for money. So For this and and many other reasons, I've always personally never, in my pride, never wanted to ask someone for money when I needed it. Uh, But especially as a pastor, uh, Janine and I have PTSD from uh, church business meetings over the years where we're gonna come together as a congregation and talk about money and how much we have and how much we need and all those kinds of things. It can be pretty terrifying. And I remember thinking, that the worst kind of Christian thing that you could do is to be a missionary overseas. Because then you have to go from church to church all of your life and come back, come home, show people some quilts that they made in the country where you are, and you're wearing their fancy dress from your country, but really, and you're going to say, hey, we covet your prayers, but really, we covet your money. We need your money. And they really do. And I thought, what a terrible thing. What a wonderful thing life, to be a missionary, and what a terrible thing to have to do to ask people for money. And so then in 2000, when I became a Southern Baptist minister, I discovered this thing called the International Mission Board, and they blew my mind. I thought, you mean you just, churches give money all year long and there's a big pot and you just get paid to go be a missionary? You don't have to ask for it? And they said, yes. I said, that is a great idea. But I'm not a Southern Baptist anymore, and we can't do those things. And so last summer, when my son wants to go on a mission trip, he's got to write up a letter. I'm like, I can't help you, son. I hate that stuff. (laughs) Ask your mom. She can figure it out. I think if the Apostle Paul could creep into my mind and listen to my hang-ups about asking for money as a pastor or as a church or as missionaries, I think he would tell me very bluntly to get over myself. Because some things, in fact, most things are way more important than my pride remaining intact. Especially when the cause or the endeavor is to meet the spiritual or physical needs of God's image bearers. Some causes are worth shaking the coffers for, or some causes are worth rattling the offering plates. I know we don't have those anymore, so uh, slapping the box in the foyer, the big black box. And this was true for the church in the Apostle Paul's day, and it's true for us today here at Sojourn. So when you look at what we just read in Romans chapter 15... Most people would probably call this your heading is is Paul's travel plans. But what looks like traveling plans is actually an evangelist who is preemptively asking for money. So let's begin reading first, Um, breaking Paul's travels into three different destinations. And we'll begin with Rome in verse 22 of Romans 15. He says, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul now... Picks up a topic that he actually began at the, the very start of this letter. If you'll turn back, and we'll we'll be coming back to Romans 15 the whole time, but if you'll turn to Romans chapter 1, the very start, he says similar things in Romans chapter 1, verse 9. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son. That without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul says in Romans 1 that he prays for them, all of the time. And again, uh, he does not know these Christians. He knows of them. He didn't plant this church, but he can't wait to look them in the eye and put skin to skin, have Christian fellowship, and see them in person. He prays for them. He prays God will help them. him get there someday. He longs to see them. He wants to preach the gospel in Rome. He wants to encourage them, be encouraged by them, but so far he has been detained because of his task in Greece. And to these facts now, in Romans 15, he adds that this longing has been a longing that he's had for many years. He says, for many years to come to them. And now we can finally make progress in that direction because his task, which has demanded his utmost attention in Greece, has now been Fulfilled. And the way he says that in verse 23 is that he says, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. Which, as he told them in the previous verses, means that he has made Jesus' name known all over the region in which it was unknown. Now, Paul doesn't mean that every soul in Greece is now a Christian, or that even every person in Greece has already heard the gospel But he believes that he has sufficiently planted solid churches there by which every soul can be reached by the local Christians. And so the churches are healthy, there are many of them, and Paul is ready to move on. He's laid a foundation, and he leaves it up to others. The churches that he's mentioned, the churches he's written letters to, uh, the church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Berea and Corinth, he's left them to water the seeds that he's planted. But before he moves on to speak of the next phase of his travel plans, I believe Paul drops a few hints that may have made these Roman Christians both sad and maybe some of them, who are more negative, like me when it comes to money, made them a little more cynical. Let's look at verse 24 again. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So first he tells him his visit's going to be temporary, or it's going to be brief. He says, I'm going to see you in passing, on his way to somewhere else. He says he can only join, enjoy their company for a while. Does that feel good? Like, hey, I've got more important things to do, I'm going to stop. I actually experienced that this week. Uh, We had a a student who was from Poland who came to OBA for a year in 2020. She had to leave early because of COVID. Zosia shows up. Zosia Skiba shows up in her hallway. She's got her brother. I see her. I hug her like, hey, how's it going? We're so excited to see you. You're actually here. You're from Poland, but now you're here in Enid. How long are you going to be here? I wish I hadn't asked. She said, well, we're just going to be here for a few days, and then we're going to New Mexico, and then we're going to Colorado. And I said, oh, did you go to school in New Mexico or Colorado? (laughs) Who are the people that you know there that have poured into you? Do you need to spend some? No. (laughs) We don't have mountains here. So just seeing America, passing on. Thanks a lot. Paul kind of says something similar to the Romans. I'm just stopping through. I'm going to see you for a while. We'll enjoy some fellowship, but I've got more important things to do. That's the sad part, that this capital city of the first century universe isn't the apple of Paul's eye. He's not staying for months or years like he has in other places, but I think the part which um, might leave a negative impact on them is where he says this. He says he wants to be helped on my journey there by you. I want to be helped on my journey there by you. I think Paul's primary purpose in writing this letter is to explain the gospel clearly and succinctly to the Romans. That is his main purpose and what the implications of that gospel are for their lives together. But I think Paul has another reason that he's writing this letter. I think he is writing to introduce his ministry to the Roman Christians. They don't know him. And also, he's introducing his ministry for the purpose of gathering funds for furthering his mission to places where Christ has never been named. I think that's behind the writing of this letter. And he said earlier, he doesn't want to build on the foundation of others, and the Roman church has already been founded. It is established, it is healthy, it's growing, And so, in fact, Rome does not need what Paul does best, while Spain is in great need of his apostolic frontier evangelism and church planting. And so the Roman Christians learn that the very priority which has kept Paul from seeing them for so many years is the same laser-focused mission which will keep Paul from staying long. And that is, as we saw last week in verse 21, that those who have never heard of him, Christ, will understand. That's Paul's mission, and his fellowship with these Christians is not going to get in the way of his primary mission. But just as Paul stirs up excitement in this letter for his visit to Rome, he also mentions another item which he finds more important or more urgent than visiting them. So here's another knock on this poor church in Rome. He is going to Jerusalem first. Let's pick it up in verse 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So he is saying to them essentially, hey guys, coming your way, but first I have to go back to Jerusalem. As much as we would have a good time edifying one another, my brothers and sisters in Jerusalem have physical needs which are more urgent. And we know, uh, for for whatever reason, we don't know if it's because of a drought that was predicted by one of the prophets that we saw in Acts, or if it's because of persecution from the Jews or from the Romans in Judea. Uh, Whatever the cause, the Jerusalem saints, the Jerusalem Christians, are without food, without shelter, clothes, work. And Paul goes to them with material resources from other churches to bless them. He's been collecting this money for some time on his third missionary journey, and now he is ready to deliver for them what they could not take care of themselves. And he's been championing this cause. Uh, We see this happening. Just turn a few pages from Romans to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 through 4, Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so also are you to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me." And so Paul tells them every week, take up a benevolence collection. This isn't the money that they're already taking to help pay for their pastors. It is something extra so that he can collect it when he comes. And then in the next book, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he brings it up again with the same Christians. Chapter 8, verse 1. This is amazing. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I didn't make that sentence up. We don't change words of Bible verses like we apparently can change words of songs. (laughs) He says, Their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then, by the will of God, To us, and then in the next chapter, Second Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 6, Paul says, The point is this whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He's still talking about money, not crops, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God. Loves a cheerful giver. So again, it's, it's not that these people were so wealthy, but that they were so generous. They gave beyond their means, or the word we would use there is sacrificially. Their love of their neighbor could be felt financially. They could feel the difference in their budget. As Mother Teresa used to say, Live simply so that others can simply live. And Paul affirms this joy, this joyful, cheerful giving of the Greeks in the passage that we read in Romans 15. Back to Romans 15 in verses 26 and 27, he says they were pleased to do it. It was their pleasure to give sacrificially. But then Paul tells them it was more than just their pleasure to give to the Jewish Christians. He claims it was also their duty as Gentile Christians in verse 27. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So he hearkens back to a point that he made in Romans chapter 11, that the Gentiles were wild, unnatural branches that were grafted into the Jewish tree of salvation in Christ. And I'll just read a few verses from there. Romans chapter 11, verses 17 and 18, he says, but if some of the branches were broken off, that's the Jews by birth, and you, although a wild olive shoot, Gentile, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches, the Jews who don't believe. If you are, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Or as Jesus would tell the Samaritan woman, At the well in John chapter 4, he says, You worship that which you don't know. We worship that which we know. He says salvation comes from the Jews. But there's something more about this offering. The glorious thing about this charitable aid, this bag full of money that Paul is carrying back to Jerusalem, isn't simply that God's people are taking care of one another. It's more than that. The amazing thing isn't limited to the fact that these Christians were generous even though poor and afflicted themselves, although that is beautiful as well. The truly jaw-dropping truth about this offering that Paul is taking back to Jerusalem, the element which should bring tears to a Jewish Christian's eyes is that this money is from Gentiles. 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 Gentile Christians are sending money to Jewish Christians. The early church had so much difficulty and pain working through their issues regarding race and culture. And in the Jewish mind, there are only two races, Jew and Gentile. And by Jesus' day, the Jews had grown over centuries to despise the Gentiles as lesser than, the uncircumcised, or those who are forsaken from God. And I would guess that Gentiles could sense that condescension and want to return it right back at them. But Jesus prophesied to a Roman centurion, he says, people would come from the farthest east and the farthest west, and they would sit down and recline at the table of Abraham and enjoy the eternal wedding feast. Jesus said in John 10 that he had other sheep who were outside of this Jewish fold, and he was going to go after those sheep, Gentile sheep, and bring them in and turn them into one flock. And Paul says it this way in Ephesians Chapter 2, Ephesians 2, verse 11. ...without the message of the Jewish Messiah. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Same idea in Galatians 3, verse 28 and 29. Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female for you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Amen. What that means is that Jew and Gentile is no longer the most important thing about them. Same thing for you, by the way. Whatever, however you choose to identify yourself The most important thing about the Jew and the Gentile is now that they are Christians. That is what identifies them. That may be theologically true in Ephesians and Galatians and in the book of Acts, but you know what? It was really hard to live out. It was really hard for them to lay those identities down. That's why Paul had to devote so much time in this letter to weak and strong Christians. And much of their weakness or strength was tied to that cultural baggage, the Jewish baggage, the Gentile baggage, the law of Moses, food sacrifice to idols. What do we do about all those things? And when they came together, it was coloring their Christian faith and it was distorting their views of one another. That's why it is so important for Paul to get this Gentile Christian money to these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And if you don't believe that it's that big of a deal, just look at the map here and you can see how important it is to Paul. The lines he's drawing in his travel plans are not straight lines. This is not the shortest distance to get to Rome. What we have, in fact, if, he, if Paul is writing this letter in the city of Corinth in Greece, then he currently sits only 700 miles from Rome. All he has to do is go west 700 miles and hit Rome, but that's not what he's going to do. He says, I'm coming there, but first I have to go back to Jerusalem. I have to go in the opposite direction. I have to go east 800 miles, deliver the money, And then I'm going to double back and go all the way to Rome. So that's 1,500 miles now. And that isn't even counting. Once he gets to Rome, he still has 700 miles to go to get to Spain. In other words, of the 3,000 miles of travel that Paul has just laid out before him, over half of that will be backing up to deliver this Gentile money to the jewish christians who are suffering with physical needs and keep in mind when you think of travel he is not thinking travel like you were thinking travel okay he is not taking united airlines where he can be furious if he doesn't have wi-fi or if there's not a screen on the back of the chair so he can watch a movie that's not how paul is rolling he is in a boat and it's not a good boat If you've read the end of the book of Acts and all of Paul's travels on the water, or if you've just even read about Jesus and his disciples in a little boat on the Sea of Galilee, uh, getting out on the water didn't always go as planned. I think the word that comes up over and over at the end of Acts is tempestuous. (laughs) Or you might think of the disciples waking Jesus up and saying, Why don't you care that we're about to die? That's what can happen in a boat. This is how Paul is making all these journeys. And Paul knows what it's like to have his plans changed. Sometimes he has to stay a little longer in a town. Sometimes he gets stoned and left for dead under a pile of rocks. Sometimes he ends up swimming with sharks, hanging on to a little piece of debris. So why is Paul willing to attempt this tremendously inconvenient and dangerous trip, it is because this money matters. The suffering of the Jewish Christians is something Paul and the Gentile Christians far away want to alleviate. And he says the Gentiles, because they've been eternally blessed by the work of this Jewish Messiah and his Jewish apostles, that they want to return material blessings to those who have given them spiritual life. But he's still not taking his eye off of his top priority. Yes, he's going to Jerusalem. Yes, he's going to Rome after that. But Christ has been named in both of those cities, and their churches are flourishing. So finally we see in verses 28 and 29 of Romans 15, that Paul ultimately wants to get to Spain, because Paul has never been to Spain, but he really likes the music. <laughs> this song has been in my head all week. If you don't get that joke, you are under 40 years old or over 80 years old both great ages to be. And it's okay. Spain is the goal. It was the furthest reach of the Roman Empire, or it was the end of the earth, to borrow Jesus' phrase, from his final instruction to his disciples. Uh, That's how far Jesus said they were to go in being his witnesses. If you look at Acts chapter 1, Verse 8, this isn't the Great Commission, but this is the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. Verse 8, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of Jerusalem. The earth. For most people living in the Roman world, the ends of the earth, as far away as they could imagine, would be Spain. In this day, there were many Roman colonies in Spain, but Paul had heard no word, no report of Spanish churches existing. Verse 28 and 29. When therefore I have completed this task and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So, that last phrase, we don't know if Paul means that he brings the fullness of Christ's blessings to them or if he will be fully blessed in Christ by them. He likely means both of those because he talks about a mutual blessing in the first chapter. I'm not sure what he means in verse 29, but I do know what he means in verse 28 when he says, I will leave for Spain by way of you. He's not talking about geography. He's not drawing lines on a map from one port to another. Uh, Paul is dumping off bags full of money in Jerusalem, and he's coming back with a much lighter load, if you know what I mean. It's as if Paul is pulling out his pockets out of his pants and saying, Hey, look here. Look, guys. Uh, Going to Spain. All I've got are two cough drops and a lifesaver. Gonna need a little help, Rome. What do you got? That's what he's saying when he says, I'm getting there by way of you. He's preparing the Roman Christians to dig into their pockets and enable his frontier mission to continue. He wants their help. He needs their money. And maybe even uh, it's implied that he needs a few workers. He wants some bodies to go with him on this trip. Now, of course, he will want them to do this joyfully and freely, just like the other believers in Greece. He wants them to be pleased to do so, but he also might consider an obligation for them as well. So we see in this text today, the Great Commission continues rolling And Paul is asking the Roman Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, to be a part of it, and to be a part of it financially. So, that's what the text means. But I think we would all agree, when we look at this passage, that it is descriptive rather than prescriptive, and when I say that, I mean Uh, This text is describing what happened, describing what Paul plans to do. It's not prescribing or telling us what we should do. And that's kind of jarring compared to how how Romans has been going for a while. Since chapter 12 of this letter... The commands and instructions have been flowing from the pen of Paul, and it's so easy for us to just take these commands and do it, right? They're the church, we're the church. They said to do this, we need to do this. 2,000 years later, uh, not much has changed in those applications. It's immediately applicable. It is prescriptive. And what I mean by that is we're going through Romans. We saw it wasn't hard for us to learn that we need to avoid conforming to this world. We need to renew our minds and to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We need to use our spiritual gifts to serve one another and live peaceably with one another. We need to submit to the governing authorities to love one another. We need to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us, whether we're strong or weak. It wasn't hard for us to figure out what we're supposed to do in a prescriptive biblical text. But the end of this letter doesn't quite work like that. It is descriptive, right? Does the Apostle Paul still need our money? No, he's good. Does he need a buddy in the boat? As fun as that may sound to you, he does not. And we don't even know if Paul made it to Spain. The closest clue that we have comes from a church father, a pastor named Clement of Rome, who said around 96 AD, this is the quote, "'To the whole world he,' meaning Paul, "'taught righteousness. And reaching the limits of the West, he bore his witness before rulers.'" So Clement, did he make it or not? Well, possibly. We know that he made it to Rome, but he arrived in chains. The trip didn't quite go like he envisioned, and I'll leave some of that for Dylan next week. But the question remains, how do we apply Paul's travel plans or his missions giving letter to our own lives and to our own church? We don't have commands, but I think we have some clear principles which are true for Christians of every age until Jesus Christ returns. And I'm just going to give you two of these principles, and I'm going to give them in the form of questions. And both of these questions touch on money and giving and generosity. And we must always ask ourselves, as individual Christians and as a church, these questions. So here goes, first question. The question is, Where is Christ unknown? Where is Christ unknown? If you take Paul out of context and follow him, hoofing it to Spain, You'll be surprised when you get to Spain today that there will be statues and paintings of Jesus Christ all over the place and some churches that have been there for a thousand years. Not saying Spain is bustling with evangelical Christians and that a stronger presence is not needed, but I am saying that Christ has been named there. So uh, it might surprise you to know that today on planet Earth, there are 3,161 unreached, unengaged people groups, or UUPGs, if you're a dork. No offense, Jim. I think Jim likes to say that. You're not a dork, Jim. You're just a super missionary. So here's the map of UUPGs. You can probably guess red is bad. Red means there's not much going on there as far as the gospel is concerned. These red areas uh, represent 283 million human beings. And what we mean by unreached is that there is less than a 2% evangelical Christian presence. Evangelical means Christians who believe the Bible is true that Jesus is the only way to be made right with God and that you need to hear this message or you are eternally in trouble, okay? That's what evangelical, what we mean by evangelical. So unreached means less than 2%, but unengaged is a different category. Unengaged means there is no one with any plan or any effort trying to plant a church in that area, no plan, no missionary, no Bibles are on the way, nothing. They are unengaged. 283 million people. So, where is Christ unknown? There it is. Let's go, church. Can we get to all of these people? Amen. Thank you for the amen, but no, we can't. We can't. There's no way we can reach all these people, right? But will we do something? Ron, I need it now. Amen. Amen. Yes, we will do, we can do something, right? And so we are. In 2018, five years ago, Pastor Dylan and Pastor Jim started praying about what to do about an annoying map like this because they were were uncomfortable. We had a weird setup in our church where they're They shared an office together. Their desks faced one another. Kind of weird. And there's a map up on the wall of, of this, right? And so they're just looking at this map and saying, wow, we love Enid. We're making disciples in Enid. We're trying to reach Enid, but the population to church ratio does not look like this, right? And so they're praying about it. And Jim and Kim go on a trip to Thailand to minister to some missionaries there, and they run into someone who is overseeing a young couple from Oklahoma who is trying to reach Tibetans in China, I'm a minority group in China. And their names are Brookshire, and they were at work in what is known as a zero area. A zero area has no... Bibles, no missionaries, and nearly zero Christians. They would love to have a 2% evangelical presence in this area. And so Johnny Brookshire gifted us what we call Dragontown. If you've been around Sojourn for very long, you've heard of Dragontown. This is a city of 100,000 people that now We we will say this, I mean, not arrogantly, but the Christian population has doubled in Dragontown since we started this work. There are now two Christians in Dragontown 100,000 people, two believers that we know of. In the last five years, Sojourn has taken three trips to Dragontown. We pray for them together on the first Tuesday of each month. But some things have hindered the mission. COVID popped up in 2020. We quit going on trips. Uh, And then even worse, the Brookshires were kicked out of the country by the Chinese government, along with all of the other missionaries that we had in the area. And now Johnny and Shannon can't go back. They are marked. They can't go back to China. But guess who can go back to China? We can. We can. We are currently working with an American who was on Johnny's mission team named Pat, and he runs a tourism business in Dragontown. Does it look like a place to tour? Yes, it does. Of course, his main goal, Pat's main goal in Dragontown is evangelism and church planting. That's what he really wants to accomplish, not tourism. Honestly, he's probably not that interested in tourism. But if you're going to do ministry there, you have to have something that you're doing. You have to have a way in, something you're contributing to this society. But he needs our help. And Pat needs our help by legitimizing his business by guess what? Guess what he needs us to do? Be tourists. You can hike the Himalayan mountains to ensure that Christ will be named where he is not yet named. Do you hear me? (laughs) This is what he is asking for. (laughs) We're planning a trip at the end of May or early in June. And I know everyone cannot go, but some of us can go. All of us can pray. All of us can give. When you pray, when you go, when you give, you are doing something about that map. We cannot do everything on that map. We are a small church, but you know what? We picked one thing, one place, one people, and we're going to pour ourselves into that. Sojourn Giving sent missionaries to Italy, Thailand, and Poland last summer. Our church is actually part of a church planting network. We're not a denomination. We're a church planting network. Acts 29, which plants churches nationally and internationally. When you give money to our church, you're giving to that. We've supported the planting of churches in the United Arab Emirates, in Kuwait, in the Middle East, and there are healthy churches in cities where there were none. We're currently supporting the planting of churches in India, we have sojourners sharing the gospel in Muslim North Africa. In Tibetan Southeast Asia. And you might mumble and say, oh, well, what about here? We got plenty of lost people here. What about the people around here? We got plenty of light. Yep. There are lost people in Enid. Do we have lost neighbors? Yes. Do we need to draw our friends and co-workers to Christ? Of course, that is always on. Go make disciples right where you are. But Christians have to be able to spiritually walk and chew gum at the same time. We want to push back the darkness in Enid. We want to shine a light In the darkness in the United States, but Christ is Lord of all the earth. He cares about all of them, and we should too. And if we don't, something's broke. Think bigger. God is bigger. And we can do our part to take Jesus' name to the ends of the earth. Keep giving. Keep praying. Keep going. God is at work all over the world in this tiny group of believers in Enid, Oklahoma. Never stop asking, Where is Christ unknown? That's question number one. Question number two Where are saints in need? Where are saints in need? There's been a tendency among Christians, especially evangelical and conservative Christians, to assume that because the spiritual need of human beings is their greatest need, that nothing else matters. Preach the gospel. Don't worry about justice or politics or social ills. Don't worry about caring for the poor. Just preach the gospel and let all of that take care of itself. But just because something is most important doesn't mean nothing else is important. I think it's safe to say no one ever cared more about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ than the Apostle Paul. I think I can stand behind that. And even though he knows, or he knew the spiritual need awaiting him in Spain, he travels nearly 2,000 miles out of his way to meet the physical needs of his fellow Christians in Jerusalem. And so, whether you're reading the Old Testament and we're talking about God's people, the nation of Israel, or whether you're reading the New Testament and we're talking about the church, Caring for the physical needs of one another is something God demands. He demands it. And at the risk of preaching an entirely new sermon here, which, believe me, I want to do, I will just sponsor a verse dump. So don't even try to hit. turn to all these. In fact, I'm just going to read off the screen because I don't want to flip through my Bible. So um, these are a few... A few truths that God uh, gives us about what, what's God's attitude toward the poor. Exodus 22 25 through 27. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear him, for I am compassionate. God cares that his people don't freeze at night. Does that seem like a trite thing to you? It doesn't seem that way to God. Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. God cares that his people have something to eat. Deuteronomy 10, 18 through 19. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow Loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God cares that his people have a shelter. Deuteronomy 15, 7-11. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him. And lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release, is near. Continue. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because... For this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. If you didn't catch that, open hands are good. Hard hearts, closed fists are bad. Proverbs 14.31 Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. How you treat the poor is directly related to how you treat God. Luke 12, Most of the time when Jesus is talking about money, by the way, he's not telling us to give to the poor. He's addressing something deeper that would keep us from wanting to give to the poor. He's addressing money as an idol our hearts. He says, you can have one master, not two. You can serve God or you can serve money, but you can't do both. But he says in Luke 12, 33 to his disciples, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And then we see the apostles and the disciples, after Jesus ascends into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes to live in them. And how do they live together? It looks like this. Acts 2.45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Acts chapter 4.32-35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is not communism. This is not the government forcing you to give your things to someone else. These are people who love Jesus, who have a God who was rich, but became poor for their sake, and because of that, they love their neighbors. They love their brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're not going to let any of them suffer. Because if everything that Paul has said in Romans is true, that we are part of one another, we belong to one another, when one of us suffers, when one of us hurts, all of us suffer. All of us hurt. So we are going to take care of one another. It's what Christians do. Amen. No member of this church should go without food or clothing or shelter. If your house burns down, we've got you. If your car explodes, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> we've got you. That doesn't mean that all poverty is the same. Some of us might be poor because we are lazy. That's a biblical category. Some of us might be in poverty because we are foolish, or like the Proverbs say, because we are pursuing a life of pleasure. And the Bible says that that kind of suffering is likely deserved. Paul would also say in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 10 through 12, summarizing, if you don't work, you don't eat. If you need a bigger TV, we don't got you. If you need a nicer car, or you can't pay your bills because you have 5 brand new cell phones and a Corvette, we don't got you. In that case, we would love to sit down with you and help you bring your finances under the discipleship and lordship of Jesus Christ. That is what you need. We don't want to give you help that hurts you and allows you to continually live in sin. If hurts you we don't want to give that kind of help but we belong to one another we need to make sure every member has what they need to survive Amen. and not just under this roof as with the gospel mission Of the church our Christian eye of compassion needs to encompass the globe we need to look further do we take care of us yes and look further and you may say again how can we alleviate all the suffering in the world even all the Christian suffering in the world you're right we can't but that doesn't mean we should do nothing If you step into the foyer of this church, you have probably noticed a map of the world on the wall. And it's not just there for a neat decoration. It's not just there so your kids can move the magnets all over from one side of the planet to the other. Show up in a diaper sometime, a little dragon. It shows where our church is supporting gospel work. And it shows where we are at work trying to eliminate suffering amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'll just mention a few of them. Village Schools International. Steve and Susan Vinton. They've been here. They've stood here and tell you what they, what they do. They're building schools and giving education to African children. They've been doing it for decades now. Do they give these kids the gospel? Yes, but they give them so much more that they need. They give them the skills and knowledge to work, to contribute to the economy of their countries, to allow them to escape cycles of poverty and misery that would be unbreakable without help from the outside. They're the most godly people I've ever been near. Pick up a flyer outside. Send them a check. If you're young and able, send yourself. He'll keep you for four months. He'll keep you for a year. Go live in a hut and teach in the jungle. VSI isn't just changing individual lives for the glory of God, but entire nations are being transformed by what they do. We've also heard in this spot from the Evans family, a family that left this church, left Sojourn over a decade ago to serve in Africa. And today they're transforming the culture of Zambia by teaching students how to farm the land. Again, changing the economy of a nation and ensuring a future for these young men and women who have nothing. Grab a flyer, send a check, Send yourself. Go pull some weeds. Go, go pull a plow. Jim will teach you how. Jump in with Yakuba at Hosanna Ministries. We've supported their ministry for years. They drill, will, uh, drill uh, wells, water wells in Niger, Africa. Yakuba is a gospel preacher there in a Muslim land. Do you take clean water for granted? Do you put any thought into your water source? You don't. They don't have clean water. Yakuba gets it done. Jump in with Sister Jasna, T- Touch India. She loves all the orphans in the whole world. You're right, we can't meet every need in the world, but we can do something. We have so many people with boots on the ground who we know and love and trust. There's no way we can just stand by and do nothing. And by the way, we are not. You are not. Some of you may be really convicted by this and and are not giving. I don't know where every person is, but I can speak as a church. This is not an angry sermon. If that's what you've heard today. Because God's people are so generous in this place. When I'm laying out this list of all of the things that we've done, all of the places that we're going, that's not bragging. It's not even a humble brag. I'm talking about what God has done in your hearts. We do these things to the glory of Christ's name because you give, you go, and you pray. So may all these ministries of the body of Christ at Sojourn abound still more and more. The God we believe in is not short of cash because all that we have is His.
2: let's pray father in heaven Lord been told that the country we live in could very well be the richest nation that's ever existed we have so much God, where we are holding on too tightly to what you have blessed us with, God, loosen our grip. Where there are saints in need that we are aware of, God, show us how we can give. Give us hearts to want to. Help us to think creatively, to put the same energy and effort into figuring out how we can give out of so much abundance to those in need. Help us to put the same effort into that as we do in planning our investments and, and our retirement and our careers. And... God, we need your help. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see those areas where Christ has not been represented, where there are, where there is no measurable influence. God, help us to see those areas where you want us to plug into. You've already shown us Dragon Dragontown. You've, you've introduced us to church planting in the Middle East and relief in Africa and India and church planting in India Lord you've you've opened doors I pray that you continue to do that Lord and that we would be faithful to obey God we hold so tightly to our things we spend so much time and energy planning for our futures in this world when God, we have a future that transcends and outlasts anything this world can offer us. We have so much waiting on us. Help us not to fear letting go of the things that will be taken anyway. Give us courage. Give us faith where we like it and help us, Lord, as a church and as individuals experience the blessing it is to give back what's not really ours anyway. Thank you for Romans, thank you for Paul and his example. Thank you for Ryan and his faithfulness to preach and teach. God help us not to walk out of this place unchanged and unchallenged, Lord rather help us to just think hard on how we can make a difference with what we've been entrusted to steward. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.